0: Welcome to Westminster Presbyterian Church. I'm Donald Meisel, minister to and with this congregation, this church located at the corner of Nicollet Mall and 12th Street here in downtown Minneapolis. This is the 11th in our series of Thursday noon town hall forums with time and experience we become more rather than less dedicated to surfacing significant issues facing our society through the informed voices of conscientious people. That is, through people of conscience who live the issues and address the complexities out of hard-won convictions. The issue today is the sedation of America. Our speaker is Barbara Gordon, who has known the struggle firsthand and who has written vividly about it in her book, I'm Dancing As Fast As I Can, a book which has been translated into a film and is receiving some fine reviews. Ms. Gordon's presence here today attests to her having, with help, won her battle, even as her presence attests to her genuine concern about what too many of us, wittingly or unwittingly, are doing to ourselves or allowing to happen to others. In her book, Ms. Gordon speaks of the horror of feeling invisible. Well, Barbara Gordon, we see you clearly. We welcome you, we applaud your recovery, we rejoice in your ongoing concern for others, and we are ready to listen what you have come to town to share with us here today.
1: Uh, thank you. I am proud to be here. I've only been in Minneapolis uh, since last night, but I he- I think you all are very very fortunate to have the kind of community outreach and concern from this church in this community. Uh, it's as alive and and aware of what's going on. Uh, in America today as any place I've been. And this morning, I just must leave my notes for a moment. If we didn't think the problem of uh, prescription drug abuse was a major issue, all you had to do was turn on your television set. On two Minneapolis local channels today, the issue was being addressed, one by Betty Ford. And if people want to talk about courageous women, Betty Ford is certainly one of the most courageous women in America. And she was talking. Primarily about the ERA amendment, which is something I won't get into here, which I support, and which uh, she supports. (laughs) But she talked about prescription drug abuse, and then I flicked to the next channel, and there was a very iconoclastic, salty old doctor named Dr. Robert Mendelson, who's written a book called Male Practice about how doctors are sedating patients, primarily women patients, and he's a salty and irreverent man, and they plugged his speech tonight, and I urge you to go hear him. Um, He's speaking at the Y about the issues of of male treatment uh, of doctors. I think that's what he's treating about, but he's a joy. He's also wonderful because he agrees with me. (laughs) There is something uh, happening in America. When I left a mental hospital a few years ago, feeling unique and quite aberrational, I didn't know it was happening, but a lot of people began to write books and began to talk about the problem of prescription drug abuse. Some of them went as far as I did, which was to talk about the battles they had to face in the mental health system and the doctors along the way. Others are less angry than I am, so they didn't get into that issue, but still it is an issue. It's, it even has a name. It's called iatrogenic medicine. That is, diseases that come from the treatment we get from the doctors or from the medications they give us without care, without caution, without warning. I sat down to write a book in 1977 when I left a hospital to, uh, to try to externalize what had happened to me. For uh, 20 years, I had been a documentary filmmaker, so I was sort of used to making my cameras and typewriters work on other people's problems. But then I found myself right in the middle of the thickest problem in my life, which was a nervous breakdown and a serious bout of mental illness that was caused, or provoked, or whatever, by the sudden withdrawal from a, a, a tranquilizer that I had been taking for years and I couldn't get a job. I had a couple of Emmy Awards sitting on my bookcase, and I had a pretty good career. But the word had gone out, I think the word had gone out, that Barbara had gone bonkers. And we couldn't trust her with $100,000 budgets or whatever. Or maybe it just was that there were all those cutbacks at the stations uh, that I used to work at. I tend to think that if I had had a heart attack or a bout of diabetes, There wouldn't have been quite so many cutbacks going on at the stations at that time. But maybe it's a blessing, because then I wouldn't have been forced to the typewriter for kind of therapy to write a book. I wrote a book called, I'm Dancing As Fast As I Can. And in case you wonder that weird title, I will tell you what it comes from. I have a favorite joke. It's about a man and a woman who meet at a singles resort in the mountains, and they're dancing. And the man says to the woman, I'm only here for the weekend. And the woman says, I'm dancing as fast as I can. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't think I'm the only woman in America who lived her life dancing as fast as she can, trying to combine love and work and all the responsibilities and the terror of being the new woman, with no role model in my own family, to be that new woman, carving new territory like walking on the moon. So let me tell you what happened to me. (laughs) I had anxiety attacks. Maybe some of you have had them. They're also phobic attacks. Darting out of department stores, running out of subways and buses, taking increasing amounts of a tranquilizer given to me by the same psychiatrist over a period of eight years. Now, I was an investigative journalist. I investigated the FBI and the CIA and the Housing Authority in New York and the plight of Vietnam veterans when they came back from the war, facing our schizophrenia about that war and the disdain and the shameful way we treated them. But I never investigated my popping six pills a day. And it occurs to me that many modern women use less scrutiny about their own personal lives in their attempt to, to, to gain the equality and the success in their careers, that was that something that we, we've aspired to for so long. On St. Patrick's Day, 1977, I became an investigative journalist in my own life. I saw myself getting ready to take a couple of pills to get down the elevator to start the day. And it was as if for the first time I saw myself taking something. I had been worried about the pills, going to the doctor, saying, I'm very worried I'm becoming addicted. How did I know I was addicted? I had them in my pocket all the time to get from my office at CBS to the cafeteria downstairs. I couldn't walk the streets alone. My world was shrinking from my apartment to my office. To me, those were signs of addiction. He kept saying, that tranquilizer is not addictive. You cannot become addicted, it's safe. On March 17, 1977, I thought it was unsafe, and I called him and he said, well, if you must stop, (laughs) don't take one no matter what happens. There was no warning on the pill. There were no articles in the newspapers the way there are today. There wasn't the flood of information that's come out since I'm out of the hospital. Senator Kennedy last year had hearings in Washington on the problems of tranquilizers and prescription drug abuse in this country. Person after person could be seen on Walter Cronkite's news that night testifying to the horrors, the horrors, that can happen with rapid drug withdrawal. I wish Kennedy had had those hearings in 77. Then I wouldn't be here, we'd be talking about something else. Anyway, I listened to the doctor's advice because I am a good patient. I was brought up in a family, in a nice Jewish family, where doctors are gods. <laughs> we had little candles to Marcus Welby and Dr. Kildare. <laughs> I was really, you know, I was really a sleeping Stepford wife person. I don't know what was wrong with me. Anyway, I did it, and now it's not funny. The tremors, the convulsions, the hallucinations, the terrible symptom of the burning in my head, which later I saw the people on Walter Cronkite's new show testifying in front of Kennedy about. But I was determined. I had seen Frank Sinatra withdraw from heroin and man with a golden arm. You know, I was tough. If they could go off at cold, I would. Later in a mental hospital, I would learn That is the dead wrongest way to go off a tranquilizer. I'm not a chemist, but I can tell you there are things in tranquilizers that make it necessary to withdraw very, very slowly. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a pharmacologist. I can't tell you what happens to you when you take tranquilizers, except that you don't get high and you don't get that rush that I hear you get on cocaine. You get calm that you can cope. It ends the anxiety. It's not an upper or a downer. And that's what makes it so lethal, because it works so silently. If I can't tell you what happens to the psyche when you take a tranquilizer, I can tell you what it does when you go off it. There are cases of people much sicker than I. And on the other hand, there are people who never had a whimper when they went off of it and a lot of uh, people in the press have had to to say perhaps that I'm a little aberrational. Of course, we're all aberrational. I wrote about what happened to me, and judging from the thousands of letters that came in when my book came out, and the people I've seen in hospitals, and the, the, the drug abuse people from the state of New York, from the governor's office, from the mayor's office, people who are now aware. Betty Ford said today they are building a hospital in Palm Springs with her name on it, I believe, a, a, a treatment center just for chemical dependency, and that's what she was talking about on television. And the statistics, the statistics about prescription drug abuse in, this, in our society are enormous. They, the number of women who are both chemically dependent on alcohol and are tranquilizers is startling. I ended up in two hospitals diagnosed, schizophrenic, incurable, borderline, whatever it is, unable to feel what Donald just referred to as my feeling invisible. Until a woman doctor, a psychologist, said to me, every time you opted to take a pill rather than dealing with anger or sadness or frustration, you opted for invisibility. I said I did not. I opted for calm. It's a heavy price to pay, the, the feeling of invisibility, the, the false feeling of coping. I think years from now, when, when anthropologists look back at an America in the 1970s when we all were blitzed with a lot of the wonder drugs that came out of the 60s, they're gonna look at it as an obscene time when a generation of American women, and some men, but, but, but women to a far larger degree, have been given tranquilizers by their doctors than men, and I'll get into that issue in a moment. But they will look back and they will say we were an obscene decade. It was an obscene time where women opted to have, do you remember the movie The Stepford Wives? Those blank women with those empty eyes, and those empty hearts, and those soulless people. Do our doctors tell us that that could be the price of the calm that we're getting? They don't. And that's what Dr. Mendelson was talking about today. I think there is an appropriate use for tranquilizers. (laughs) And I've tried to say that because some of the people feel that I've, I've been too harsh on it. I think in many cases of physical illness that cannot tolerate being exacerbated by stress, heart disease, hypertension pre my mother had surgery for cancer last spring. I saw what the injection of a tranquilizer did to ease her anxiety. I'm talking about crisis intervention. I didn't use it for crisis intervention. I took it every day, almost every day, for eight years in a chronic, junky way. And I treated it like medicine, not a mood-altering drug, as do many people uh, who, who take it and abuse it. I want to talk a little bit about uh, that tranquilizers, to me, really only represent a symbol, a metaphor, for anything that we use to hide from reality. It can be alcohol. I think it could even be jogging to excess. I mean, I think you can make a craziness or or an aberration out of anything. In my case, it was uh, tranquilizers. I never wanted to see myself as the Valium Queen of Midtown Manhattan. It just sort of happened to me that way. But I am still, five years later, out of the hospital, still angry about certain issues. And I want to talk about them. <clears throat> I can only tell you that I think you can take tranquilizers appropriately, and I took them inappropriately, and so do millions of people. But I think you have a choice. You have a choice to say, do I want and need a sedated life? If I have heart disease, if I have cancer, if I have issues, those types of illnesses, then I have a choice. All I did on March 17, 1977 is to say, I make another choice. I want to take my reality straight. And the way I did it, my world fell apart. Yours doesn't have to. I've been talking about the, the metaphor, the tranquilizer, but let's talk about the people who give it to us, to a lot of docile Barbara Gordons. No doctor wakes up and says, today I'm going to practice lazy, greedy, sexist medicine. It just turns out that way. If you go to a doctor and you say to him, what is the side effect of this drug? What will happen if I take it? What will happen if I don't? And he gets upset with you. Says, Trust me. You have the right to explore another doctor. Most Americans spend more time shopping for a car that doesn't guzzle gasoline or a winter coat than they do in their health care. I have a lot of girlfriends in New York, and we're at the age where plastic surgery is beckoning. I mean, we're going to lift everything that can be lifted.
0: <laughs>
1: and we have lists, neck men, eye men, breath well, you can use your imagination. We have scrutinized this list endlessly. Did I ever scrutinize the person who was helping me deal with my psyche with that rigor? with that caring not for a second. He was a psychiatrist, and the minute you walk into that office, you feel like a child anyway. And not just, not just psychiatrists. Uh, gynecologists, internists, dentists, podiatrists are all happy to give you a prescription. Many doctors have written me and said, but Ms. Gordon, what do we do? Today's patient is under such stress, and they're so knowing. They don't come in and just say they want a tranquilizer. They tell you the strength, the color, the brand, the dosage, And I said, and then if you give it, how do you differ from the, from the fixer on the street? Only that yours is on a white prescription pad. That's all. When a woman goes to a doctor, And it can be a male or a female doctor. I've been accused of being too unkind to male doctors. People have written me that some of the worst treatment they've ever gotten in terms of sexist, unfeeling medicine can come from women doctors, too. So gender is not the issue. Men have been brought up in our society to believe that emotions are something you just have to get rid of, especially for women, and especially for women because of our hormonal system. Most women, when they go to a doctor, the doctor looks at them, smiles, and says, you're just menopausal. You're just premenopausal. You're just menstrual. You're just premenstrual. You're just postmenstrual. Men do not have every ache in their body associated with their prostate glands. (laughs) And until doctors begin to realize that we have some legitimate emotions, concerns, aches and pains that have nothing to do with our reproductive system, they're going to go on sedating us. And I think it's important for us to to make it clear how we feel about that issue. I blame the doctors, but I blame me as much as anybody for what happened to me. I sat there mindlessly ingesting a chemical for eight years, and the doctor told me it was all right. Because male doctors have been brought up to believe that these kinds of emotions in women are just hysteria, just a sign of a nervous endocrine and an estrogen level and a whatever, they will give us pills. There have been studies of doctors who treat a sample of men and women going in with the same complaint. In in a startling percentage of the time, the man is given a battery of enormous tests, CAT scans, x-rays, whatever they got, the woman gets organic testing of that kind to a much lesser degree, but she gets the prescription. Senator Kennedy's statistics on women and prescription drug abuse, use and abuse were alarming. So it seems to me that doctors are neither demons nor saints, although we are a society who has been brought up to believe in them as gods, and that was something nurtured by the media, until we begin to go in and demand the kind of attention Ask when you get a prescription drug the next time if the doctor can give you that little sheet that the drug company so graciously sends with his little samples to the drug company. Ask if you can get a list from him before you fill it of the side effects, of what will happen if you take it, of what will happen if you don't. Should you go off it cold? Should you stay on it? Is there a cheaper version of it, any of it? Try to get your doctor to take that time. And I submit to you, there's a growing group of young doctors in America, men and women, who will do just that. There is a a branch of consumer medicine. And one of the biggest uh, people in this field, there's a doctor, Sidney Wolf, who I recommend to you, who works with the health resources group in Washington. He used to be associated with Nader. He just wrote a book called How to Stop Valium telling people how to go off of it carelessly, talking about the dangers of prescription drug abuse. He's not the favorite of the drug companies either, as you can imagine, but he's a gutsy, caring, bright man. And so that there are people coming up in this field who aren't giving that old line, lazy, inept medicine that so many of us have been, have been faced with in the past. Not all of the doctors and, and not all of the time practice this kind of medicine, but certainly a lot of them, judging from, from the kind of mail that I get. One of the other reasons that today's women are, are using and misusing alcohol and Valium, we have a new battle now. We've wanted Work, we've wanted equality, many of us, and the balance between love and work, which is what I'm writing about in my new book, that new balance about how to hold on to that. But one of the problems is, if we in our search to better ourselves, to have equality, to have access to the jobs that we have, we have felt deprived of for so long, if we buy the whole male bag of tricks that gave men ulcers and heart attacks at 50, then that's not liberation. That's not even equality. We should learn from what we saw our fathers and our husbands and our lovers and our brothers suffer from from the anxieties of the day, going out into the, into the world of commerce or medicine or whatever they did, and say to ourselves, we, don't have, we want careers and we want happy love lives and family lives, but the price, if the price of having to be sedated drugged a Stepford wife or a, or a drunk, and it doesn't matter. It's happening in the, in the ghettos of Detroit, in the elegant suburbs of Los Angeles. I've met these women, they've written me. It, has, it, it, it isn't just an issue of finance. It is an issue, it's a cultural issue of where women are today. People have said to me, it must be great The stigma of mental illness is over. You went right from the loony bin to the bestseller list. (laughs) (laughs) And that's something I feel very strongly about stigma, because for a lot of the kids I was in the hospital with, it wasn't quite so easy. They didn't have my typewriter. They didn't have my support system. They didn't have the kind of family and support system I had around me, and, and, and money too. I did not have uh, insurance, psychiatric insurance. And I didn't have the right income whatever for Medicaid whatever it was, so it cost me and my family an enormous amount of money. So I get into a political issue here, I believe in catastrophic health insurance for every family in this country. And I know you're not And now when the cutbacks that are coming from Washington are what they are, that's kind of an insane thing to say when we're building million dollar tanks and missiles and telling people that uh, ketchup is a vegetable in the schools. But I do believe that that's something we're going to have to address ourselves. Very few countries in the civilized world make health care a privilege depending, the quality of the healthcare you get, depending on your finances, and not a right. So that is something I think the society is going to be forced to address itself to as carefully and as the way it does to the the menace uh, that's coming in the missiles. The stigma is there, the stigma of mental illness. And it's there for people who didn't have the money the support system, the typewriter, the television career, the things that I had. And so, I guess um, the last thought that I want to say to you is, people talk about uh, the courage of Betty Ford, or the courage of Barbara Gordon to, to come forth and say these things. That's one issue. But I think, uh, in truth, the stigma will only be gone when we don't have to use the word courage anymore about issues of drug dependence. Then it'll be over. Thank you.
0: The time for our sharing of questions has come. Um, And the first one that uh, has surfaced here is to this effect from, from the audience. Would you comment on the film, I'm Dancing As Fast As I Can? Uh, let's see. It's, uh, what are your hopes for the, the film and its impact, etc.?
1: Uh, I really can't talk about the film. I've seen it. It is so close to what happened to me and so far from what happened to me at the same time that... Uh, that I really can't comment about the movie. Uh, everything that I had to say about the issue, uh, I wrote about. And then uh, and now Jill Clayburgh stars uh, in this movie uh, based on the title. So I can't really uh, comment. It's too far from what happened to me for, for it to have that much reality for me. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you. Can you give some of your experience uh, and advice on finding the right therapist?
1: (laughs) That's incredibly hard because if I say to you, ask your trusted internist, (laughs) it was my trusted internist who recommended the wonderful doctor who was happy to keep me sedated for eight years and who gave me the absolute wrong advice about how to go off when he said go off cold turkey. So I don't think that's the best way. I think you've got to, uh, eh, I really think friends are very good, or or, or people who have been in a rough place and who've come out of it. I I think word of mouth, I mean, sometimes if you do have a doctor who you have faith in, your gynecologist or whatever, I think you could ask your minister. Do you have a list of uh, therapists in this community? (laughs) Yes, I bet you do. There
0: we have persons that we could refer. People, one to.
1: and I mean, I'm just saying that that would seem to be to be a better way to go. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. You abused, this person says, a mood-altering chemical, namely pills. In your book, you indicate you're still using a mood-altering chemical, alcohol. Do you see this use as a potential danger to you? Please comment.
1: I don't remember how I said I was still using it in the book, except to say when I go out for dinner at night, I'll have a glass of wine with dinner. But alcohol never was and is not a problem for me now. So I don't, I don't even think I used it in the book to say that I used it in a mood-altering way. I used it in a, in a social way, and always have. So. So, but I can see where it could... Many people coming off of a tranquilizer will make alcohol the dependency, just as many alcoholics have been faced with the, with the, with the, the reverse, which is mm-hmm. becoming dependent on tranquilizers as a way of getting off of the alcohol. It's, it's a bad trade-off, and I think the trick is to, is to not abuse either. To use both wisely, I guess.
0: It's, uh, this question says, please comment on Nancy Reagan's approach to the problem of addiction. Uh, is, there a, is there anything to...
1: You got me. Uh, I have seen her picture uh, at several drug abuse centers, both in Florida and in New York City recently. Uh But I must tell you, I don't know what her approach is. I I plead guilty. Uh, I don't know.
0: Would you care to say anything more about Betty Ford? I heard you speaking of her. Oh,
1: I think a woman. They say that I had courage. I was a television producer who misused a pill and wrote about it. This was the wife of a President of the United States who abused alcohol, who abused uh, uh, p- pills that she needed because of her arthritis, who then faced a mastectomy, breast cancer, and with all of the in, in the old way of, of American political thinking about what a liability, you know the drunken wife, the sedated wife could be, she came for, it. she went into a hospital, she dealt with it. I saw her today on television in Minneapolis. She looked marvelous and energetic and alive and she's campaigning for this and she's campaigning for that. Uh, she's reborn, but what a risk she took uh, in, in the way we treat uh, the wives of our politicians uh, in this society. Uh-huh. That's... Oh, I just admire her enormously. That's
0: good. Okay. A number of questions uh, here uh, make reference to AA or something comparable. Uh, Could you comment, or are you Uh, part of some effort of that kind?
1: I am not, but I have gotten many letters from alcoholics. My book was very, very popular with alcoholics because we are, after all, talking about chemical dependency. And it doesn't really matter what your poison is. Tranquilizers, alcohol. I mean, I think the the, the set of dependence is the same. I'm not sure about the uh, neurochemistry of it. I know countless people who used tranquilizers, who got tremendous help in AA. And there's a new group I hear that started across the country called Pills Anonymous. I don't know if they're here in Minneapolis, but they certainly are in the uh, in the Northeast. So I think those self-help groups where people go and get strength out of shared experiences are, are tremendous.
0: Mm-hmm. Here's a very personal sharing. I have used Valium for 20 years, says the person writing this. I've tapered off for two years now, and I've been chemically free for two months. I still feel very anxious and tense, withdrawal, question mark. How long can I expect to feel these withdrawal symptoms? By the way, I am a man, exclamation mark. We, <laughs> we too have the same problems.
1: I know, and I, I, and I don't mean to overstate that. I'm very used to talking to a lot of women's groups, and I don't mean to, to trivialize that for a second. I wish you would come by uh, when this is over so that we could talk, if you're still here. I have some ideas. You're gonna feel it. I'm not a doctor. I don't know what your doctor is telling you about how long you're gonna feel it. But one thing I would urge on you instantly is exercise. It has become my new Valium. uh, I walk a couple of miles each morning, and there are now studies about how certain forms of exercise do good things for the brain and depression and anxiety. And I think if you can work some vigorous exercise into each day. And when I came in from the airport last night, uh, Ray Williams was telling me about how in Minneapolis there's always people out jogging or biking or whatever around the lakes here in town, and that exercise, even in your, your, your kind of rigorous uh, climate, is kind of built into your psyche here in <laughs> Minneapolis. And I think you should take advantage of those jogging paths and whatever. But if you'll come by, I'll be here afterwards. Maybe we can talk about uh, some stuff that'll make you feel better.
0: Good. I hope that person will. Another question, how did your family feel and what help were they uh, towards your recovery?
1: Oh, my family, if I didn't have the mother and father and brother and his three children, they were shocked. I mean, one day I was at CBS making films and then a couple of days later I was in a mental hospital. When they, I think when they got the call that I was in a mental hospital, they thought I was making a film there. Because I had done that. They were wonderful. And whatever sadness and stigma, because the stigma just doesn't end with the person It happens, uh, who becomes ill, it happens to the family as well. They were terrific, have been, they've got more reviews of the book and ads and things like that. I mean, they, they were able to, in other words, a lot of people called my book creative revenge but they were able to see that you can take an adversity and turn it around and make it, make it something positive and that, that helps other people as well as yourself so that that's given them a great amount of, of pleasure as well. That I, I, I know the price some other families have paid in stories like this, and it's, it's very exacting. It's a very costly thing. Families have broken up over issues like this, mm-hmm. but uh, we were very strong and together. I was lucky. Mm-hmm.
0: Another question. The book has much detail of your illness. How did you recall so much? Did you keep a written account?
1: Uh, sometimes in the hospital, I, they gave me a sketching pad because I did a lot of work in art therapy, which was a great help to me using the colors. The hospitals have various ways. I was in a very antiquated hospital, but they did have art therapy, and I would go there and paint terrible, terrible, primitive, rage-filled paintings, but I painted. And then I would write in this sketch pad at night some of the feelings that I had, the feeling of being invisible. I think the worst symptom that, that greeted me was the one that you mentioned of invisibility as if all of you has been shot with a... Remember when you get Novocaine in your gum when you get a filling? I felt like all of me had been injected with Novocaine. You could walk down the street, and the only way you knew you existed was you saw your shadow. I tried to write about that in the book. So some of that I kept, but I, I am one of those people who is blessed with a a very good memory, but I did keep some notes along the way. Not thinking I was even going to write a book, but just uh, I was a journalist, (laughs) and so you take notes.
0: (laughs) Another question. Um, What is the best way to start helping a friend who is getting too many sleeping pills from her doctor?
1: I think the best way you can help a friend is to be there. My book is dedicated to one woman named Edie, who wouldn't let me die. I mean, not just during the withdrawal when I got to the hospital, I'm talking about the year after, when I was scared and alone in the apartment. I didn't know what my support system was, I couldn't work, I didn't know who I was. She was there, tugging, coaxing, risking my rage, risking my rejection, I never wore her down. And I think people who are faced with this problem often try to shut people out of their lives so that they can go deeper into their self, into that depressed self. I guess you can kind of talk to your friend and see if your friend even admits there's a problem because until the person admits there's a problem, it's very, very hard. Mm -hmm.
0: Another good question. What are the key elements of your ability to face uh, reality today?
1: Uh, Key elements. Uh, Well, I exercise a lot if it weren't quite so cold. You know, it was like 60 degrees in New York when I left yesterday, and it was like the middle of winter here when I arrived last night. I I forgot about spring or the lack of it. I would have been out walking this morning. Uh, Love and work. Hmm. I think Sigmund Freud said that mental health was to love and to work. I think it's also nice. If you can love your work and work at your love, and to try to, I th- and when I say love, I'm not just talking about sexual or romantic love. I mean the love of friends, and one one intensely personal relationship in your life, and work that you care about. So the key elements for me are a, a relationship with the, some very nice people, and my new book. That's what. And, and talking about issues that I believe in, like today, is very important. I mean, that's to, to be able to pass on some, some insights to other people.
0: You mentioned that you had a, a, a Jewish back family background, and yes. this question says, do you, did your religious faith have any part in, in your recovery? Or?
1: Sadly enough, it did not. It did not. That's, that's more my personal Mm -hmm. View. I had never been a very religious person, Uh, neither was my family. We were card carrying uh, Jews. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, There were all the the attempts of a kind of perfunctory religiosity of uh, joining the temple for the children. I'm sure you've Mm -hmm. heard of things like this, you know, (laughs) (laughs) passing on to us what they did not feel or believe. And of course, kids are very smart. And so we didn't pick it. No, I don't think uh, that. Many people wrote me that had I had a stronger faith, whatever the, the mm-hmm. religion, it would have been more helpful to me. The ethics of Judaism, the strong family network mm-hmm. of Judaism, and that was, of course, important to me, but not the religiosity itself. Right.
0: This is related... In- what role do you see the church and synagogue playing in trying to help prevent people from getting into trouble with alcohol or any other drugs in the first place? You may or may not wish to comment. Well, here it is.
1: Uh-huh. Today. Okay. You're doing it.
0: <laughs> Here's a change of pace. Give me a one-line answer to, oh, it's just your age, your menopausal.
1: <laughs> uh, I can't give you one line, I mean, how can you do that? I mean, the letters that I've got from women who, who, who got into the whole tranquilizer game being told that it was their, their ovaries that was doing the talking or the not talking, I can't give you a one line answer, you just say to your doctor. It isn't just menopausal, and if you're going to treat me like that, I'm, go- I'm leaving. I want to be treated as a person, a whole person.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. You address the issue of inequality in the treatment of women, but yes. aren't men who take prescription drugs uh, vulnerable to the same abuse? You? began to speak to that.
1: They are vulnerable in very different ways. That's really an important question. Number one, they are not given tranquilizers in the numbers that women are given them. It is just a cultural difference. The the National Institute of Drug Abuse has statistics on that. Kennedy's uh, staff people at the hearings had statistics on that. Although there was a minister, a man who spoke at the hearings as tellingly and vividly Uh, at Senator Kennedy's series last year about his pain of valium withdrawal of anything I've ever heard. But men are not as vulnerable. Whether it's, and there's all kinds of reasons for that. Men can be angry with their doctor. And the doctor says, terrific, that's healthy male aggression, anger. We don't have to sedate him. A woman comes in angry, and she's a castrating, horrible person. So we must sedate that because of the the different attitudes that doctors feel about men and women get perpetrated onto us in the way we're treated. And if any, many doctors will admit that to you, that that that, that affects the way they treat you. Men can ask the same questions of a doctor. But men traditionally abused alcohol instead of tranquilizers. Now, I I heard Betty Ford saying today that 50% of all alcoholics, in America are women. So unfortunately women are catching up. We're getting equality there too.
0: <laughs> hmm You may or may not wish to respond to this because you, you kind of deferred from talking at any length about the film, but this question, Hoffman LaRoche asked some changes in the movie about your book and were successful. Were you part of the negotiations? Were you pleased with the changes? No, I-
1: this is very hard for me to talk about for all kinds of reasons. Some matters are even in litigation. I can only tell you I had nothing to do with that movie. I had no input into that movie, into the writing of the script, into the shooting of it. I had nothing to do with it. I, my favorite story about that movie is that uh, one day last summer I was walking across 57th Street in New York and there were lights and cameras on the street and I was getting some frozen yogurt on a hot summer day. And in the health food store, the owner of the shop said, Barbara, Jill Claybrook's across the street. They're making the movie of dancing in front of Henry Bendel's department store. And I live two blocks from there. So that's how informed I was on the movie. I had nothing to do with it. It's all theirs.
0: Do you see the sedation of America increasing or decreasing?
1: The New York Times says, as far as Valium is concerned, and it feels like it, that it has now been replaced as the number one drug in America by a drug called Tagament. Tagament, I think, is taken for ulcers or stomach disorders. So after years of claiming the bestseller spot at the top of the favorite drugs of America list, Valium has gone down a couple of notches, and is there. Whether that I think Americans are changing. All these people running around in jogging suits, taking vitamins, watching their diet. Um, I think there's been a change that people are eating less red meat because they're worried about what that does. I think a generation that has become so consumer health-oriented isn't going to as willy-nilly um, sedate themselves or chemically alter themselves the way a generation of women did d- did in the 70s. Mm. But I don't know about statistics or on that, and we don't know about the people who who hide it from us. Uh, we may have suspicions. I'm I can't answer that. Right.
0: Well, thank you. Do you have agoraphobic feelings you must deal with? Thank you for helping me personally through your book, I Love You.
1: Oh, uh, thank you. there's a whole... (laughs) I'm glad it helped you. I'm told that, that, uh, yeah, but agoraphobic, my doctor told me, is only the label. Sometimes we say, well, I'm agoraphobic and therefore I can't go into a department store, I can't leave my apartment or whatever. That's only the label, the desc- a descriptive term. The real issue is what's behind the agoraphobia that makes you want to flee or not go outside. I don't have it anymore, but certainly that was one of the descriptions of what was happening to me, that I couldn't go in department stores, I couldn't go up elevators. The world begins to shrink, and that's one of the symptoms, I believe, of agoraphobia. I don't have it anymore, and I'm glad you're done with it, wherever you are.
0: Can you deal with women overcoming guilt for all the events in their dependents' lives? Uh,
1: can I deal with guilt? Mm-hmm. Would you
0: it says, can you deal with women overcoming guilt for all the events in their dependents' lives? I,
1: I'm not sure I understand that, but I can just say a one-line answer to that. Of all the emotions in the whole spectrum, from envy, to lust, to jealousy, to sloth, to whatever, I think guilt is the most wasteful and most pernicious and self-destructive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: What happened to Eric? Mm-hmm.
1: Eric, for those of you who haven't had the infinite joy of reading my book, <laughs> was a not so terrific fellow who I was living with when the, when the demon struck and who during the course of my withdrawal became a little abusive. It was as if my dark side provoked a dark side in him and we ended up in trouble. I don't know where he is. He's not in my life.
0: So. How do you stay away from drugs?
1: Uh, that's interesting. Some people have asked me, like I gather alcoholics Want, go to a party and still want a drink, or they wake up with a taste for alcohol. I'm, again, I'm not an expert, but I never wanted one again. I, if I take a vitamin C now, I'm nervous. <laughs> I have a whole new respect for aspirin after what's happened to me, so I don't think it's the same thing at all. It, I am very, very, I mean, I'm sure that's just compensation. I, I wish I had had that same awe and respect for chemicals for eight years. No, I don't want to take
0: it. We're pleased that uh, Governor Cui and his wife are here today, and I have a question from the governor. What responsibility do the large pharmaceutical companies have in the promoting of their products to physicians and or the public?
1: Oh, what a wonderful question. Mm -hmm. That's a wonderful question. And if I weren't in some litigation right now, They have a major responsibility. They have a major responsibility uh, in what they tell the doctors, how they're marketed. If you read Sidney Wolfe's book, which is just coming out, he sent me galleys of it, this How to Stop Valium. He has whole pages on how the drug companies market their drugs to the doctors. There's another book that does this called The Tranquilizing of America that came out two years ago how the detail men are taught. To continue the education of the doctors. I think it's a major, major story. Uh, uh, I I feel I I can't comment other than that. Mm -hmm.
0: This card, which is signed, says, why don't you say something to corporations and businesses who use alcohol to promote business? They say it's a disease, so why do we allow it to be promoted?
1: I, I, I can't respond to that. I mean, I, corporations know that, but alcohol in our society has been traditionally a social lubricant. Uh, the expense, the, the, re, the number of restaurants in New York and bars that exist only for expense accounts that ordinary mortals couldn't afford, it's there to grease the oils of commerce, and corporations know that. The same corporation that will give a, a, a man or a woman a huge expense account to, to, to lubricate, A client will have an alcohol abuse clinic, possibly where he treats, uh, where he helps, uh, where he helps uh, those people who work for him in a socially responsible way. It's as schizophrenic as everything uh, else in our society, Uh, but I, I think everybody knows that. But there is one problem: to assume that because Barbara Gordon had trouble with tranquilizers or Betty Ford, or Somebody with alcohol and then to stop everybody else the worst thing in the world is to go to a dinner party where somebody is proselytizing his new freedom from anything on you and I because I, I abused a drug I don't if I meet people and they say Barbara I'm going to take a pill now to do this or that I don't want to become a scold and, and Therefore I think to, to, to say that people shouldn't drink because some people have problems is a mistake
0: This question rather fits in with that. It says, in non-medical terms, is there use without abuse? Is there safe casual use of any drug?
1: Casual? (laughs) Why would you wanna put anything into your body casually? Look at the women who casually took DES so they wouldn't have abortions or miscarriages, and a whole generation of American women had breast cancer and cancer of their vaginas, and and the men, children of those mothers had, had terrible distortions and illnesses in their genitalia. Casual use of drugs. I don't think the word exists. I think there is a safe use, as I said, of Valium, or other tranquilizers like it. I didn't take it that way. I didn't take it safely. I took it casually. And now to ask me to say five years later that I think there's a casual role for those kind of drugs, I can't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: We have about five minutes to go. Uh, So let's uh, let's ask a few remaining questions. I think you dealt with this one in part, but let me uh, surface it. Some tranquilizers are given for real chronic pain. I recently read of pain centers do you know of them are they legitimate is is this possibly the answer the alternative to the pills
1: i 'm not an expert on pain pills and tranquilizers of course are not just given for pain I think they're given for the anxiety that comes from pain or certainly some tranquilizers are wonderful for muscle spasms and I gather the New York the, a magazine in New York a few weeks ago had a whole issue on pain centers and kind of behavior mod ways of dealing with chronic pain. And I gather there are some new uh, advances in that field in the treatment of people who have chronic pain. And I think it's worth a try rather than a chronic use of any chemical. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you have one here in town.
0: Do you think the medical establishment can review and control the quality of health care delivered by themselves?
1: No, because they haven't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's not to say that the government comes in and regulates doctors, because that's probably worse. I mean, when when governments regulate doctors in the Soviet Union, they can send people to Siberia and they can have psychiatrists send dissidents to Siberia, so that's not a great coalition necessarily, the government (laughs) and the medical (laughs) profession. So, I don't know what to do except maybe a whole new generation of doctors with a different type of bias, a different attitude toward men, women, medicine. And I think it's happening. I think it's happening. Mm -hmm.
0: If I read my watch correctly, we're just about to that time. Concluding on the note with which I began, we rejoice that you became visible to yourself (laughs) and then to us today here. Thank you.
1: Thank you for having (laughs) me. It's good to be here.